Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of God, of the Thessalonians, of God the Father, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And Father, we do just take a moment to pause and to just thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have today, Lord, to gather in your name and to read it and to understand it and to study it. And Lord, we just pray that you would go before us today as we are reading your word and that you would teach us, Lord, that you would anoint our hearts, Lord, uh, to receive your word and to, uh, to grow from it, God. And so, Lord, we, we thank you again. Pray that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, we all say, amen. amen. You may be seated. So, to start off today's text, um, quick question for us all. How many of us have ever happened to have a moment that happened to you that forever changed your life? doesn't have to be a long moment. Maybe something like a phone call. But that one single moment happened, and from that point forward, you've been different forever, right? For me, there was this pastor of mine that I heavily looked up to when I was younger, right? He played this extremely significant role in my life during a time when I was all alone, and he led the charge to disciple me and to bring me into being a man. And I really admired who he was because he had lived this very extreme, very hard life in the world, right? And then he got saved. And then he got clean. And then he got into this discipleship program. Then he got married. And then he had kids. And then he became an ordained pastor. And I, I looked up to that. And I was just so amazed by his, his lifestyle that, that so much change, so much good happened in his life that was just so extremely um, in the world, right? And then one day, like two years ago, I get this phone call from my mom, and she says essentially that he had relapsed back into his former life. And that news hit me like a baseball bat right to the face, right? I was so shocked that what I ended up doing is I had a conversation with my wife, and I said, if this man who I really admire can fall, can everything that he's ever built up can fall straight down to rock bottom? If he can do it, then I'm, I'm certainly at risk. And so that night, what my wife and I ended up doing is we ended up having all kinds of accountability built into my life because I, I, I don't want to risk that. I, I really don't. You know, I, if, if he can do it, I can certainly lose everything in, in one chance. And so I just said, you know what? That's it for me. I'm, I'm packing my life with protection. And because it was, that, it was that one significant moment that produced real and effective change in my life. Another story, this is much more lighter. One time, before, uh, before my wife, Abby, and her sister, Megan, had babies, um, Megan and Zach invited us to go get some sushi, right? And so my wife, Abby, and I were like, cool, there's like a place on the Black Horse Pike. It's, you know, probably 10 minutes away or whatever. And Zach's like, no, we're going to Cherry Hill. <laughs> Dude, like, like, there's place, no, we're going to Cherry Hill. 
Trust me. It's like, all right, Jack, I'm going to trust you, right? Dude, I don't, get, I don't get sushi nowhere else, man. We went to this one spot in Cherry Hill. Let me tell you, best sushi I've ever had in my entire life, right? That one small moment that we had changed my whole life. That's only, that's only ever where I get sushi. <laughs> it's, it is the best. I can't even tell you where it is. It's our secret. You have to do... The, the, the uh, initiation is you have to do 100 burpees, and then you get to know what the... Uh, <laughs> What, what are, well, I'm just kidding, but so the point being is this, we, we are under, we are aware, folks, that there's certain moments like that in our life, right, that there's something that may have happened, that this event happened, and it changed who you are forever, and, and you might look back to it, and you might think, yeah, you know what, that one moment for me was when granddad passed away, and he, he gave me his Bible, and ever since then, I've just been a, a believer, right, or maybe your moment is like, man, I got, I got clocked on the football field, and I looked up, and I thought to myself, I need to get saved, or whatever the case might be. We all have these moments that have just completely changed our life. And so the point that I'm trying to get at is this. In the same way that we have these moments that are so significant, so gravitational in our life, that they change everything that we, that we do, that we live, that we think, the way we talk to people, the way we interact, how much more should the fact that we've been saved by Christ produce a massive change in our lives that we would never be the same to who we were in the past ever again, right? We, we've been saved. We had this significant moment in our life where we've come to a point to say Christ is Lord, that we should have some kind of massive, massive change from before and afterwards, right? To, to be very frank with you, you know, if we say we're Christians, if we say we've been saved, we should act like it, should we not? We've been actually going through the book of 1 Thessalonians with the youth group right? Before 1 Thessalonians, we're going through the book of John. And as you can imagine, the book of John has a lot of, you know, believe in Christ and you'll be saved. Believe in Christ and you'll be saved. And so these kids, wonderfully enough, they were really blossoming in their faith, right? And so we started to pray about what our next book would be. And we came to 1 Thessalonians because we saw that these kids were placing their faith in Christ. The question was, now what? Right? How do I live my life going forward? And so what I've been telling the youth group for the past, like, three months is I've been saying, if you say you're a Christian, then you should act like a Christian. And I don't think that's a controversial statement. Matter of fact, this is actually a statement, this is actually a truth that has been preached in the Word of God, not only for thousands of years, but in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the truth is this, worshipers of God are to be set apart and are to live differently from the world. The Old Testament says it like this, Leviticus chapter 20 says this, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I've separated you from the people, from the world, that you should be mine. The New Testament says it like this, 1 Peter, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you once lived in ignorance, that is, when you lived in the world, right? But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. And then Peter points back to the Old Testament, and he says, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. So the idea here is this. We believe in Jesus. We say we're Christians. We say that we have made this profession of faith that Christ is my Lord. Our reflections should, or our actions should reflect that, right? The way that we live our life should show our faith. We should never be the kind of person where we tell our friends or our coworkers, hey, no thanks, I'm going to church on Sunday. And our friends or our coworkers say, you're, you're a Christian? You? I would, have, I would have never figured. 
matter of fact, our actions should show those around us that people can come up to you and say, yeah, you know what, I had you, I had you pegged for a Christian. I don't know, I just, you, the way you live, the way you talk to people, the way that you say thank you for everything, I kind of had figured that you're a Christian, right? Our actions should demonstrate our profession of faith. We should not be a Christian by word only, but by word and by deed. And so our question to answer today is this. What type of conduct springs forth from the one who's placed their faith in Christ? What type of conduct should a Christian have, right? When I say, if you're a Christian, live like it, what does that mean? What exactly does that mean? And so if you're a note taker today, our title is this, it's Christian conduct. What type of conduct is, is, is proper for a Christian? How should we live our lives, right? We've placed our faith in Christ. We've said he's my Lord. We've said he's my Savior. How should we live our life? And that's why We've come to 1 Thessalonians because the letter of 1 Thessalonians is written where Paul, from an outside perspective, from a third party, he is looking at the church and he is saying, these things are evident in your life, right? And so let's pick it up. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of God, or sorry, I'm sorry, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, we give thanks to God always for you all. We're going to stop there. But we see here that Paul's writing this letter, and he's writing to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to a group of believers in the northeastern region of Greece or Macedonia, right? And this area, this city of Thessalonica, it was a very rich city, and it was a very Greek city. Matter of fact, on a clear day, if you're in the city of Thessalonica, you look southwest, and you can see Mount Olympus. Now, if you know anything about Greek mythology, Mount Olympus is like where their gods lived, right? So being a Greek-worshipping citizen was very normal. Matter of fact, it was kind of like their form of patriotism, right? There's the gods. We can see them, right? That was kind of the idea. And the book of Acts records that when the Apostle Paul came to Thessalonica, he had a very successful ministry, right? The, the book of Acts records that there were some Jews that got saved, but a multitude of the Greeks also believed as well. But unfortunately, Paul was only able to stay there for three weeks because as he was ministering, there was a mob of the Jews that got risen up due to jealousy, and they kicked him out of the city, right? And then after they kicked Paul out, they had a fierce persecution come against this small little baby church. The Bible says that Paul was only there in Thessalonica for three weeks. Three weeks it was. And after three weeks of Paul preaching the gospel, discipling, teaching them different doctrines, these folks, they had, they had gotten saved. They started to work out their life as a Christian. And then all of a sudden, Paul's gone, and the world just got a whole lot worse. So now imagine that, right? You can, see Mount, you can see Mount Olympus. You know for your whole life you've been living as an idol-worshiping pagan, and all of a sudden your life's hard, right? You have to imagine that you're looking at Mount Olympus thinking, man, maybe the gods are like punishing us because we've forsaken them, right? So Paul got kicked out of Thessalonica, right? And he's, he's so stinking worried about them. And, and as you can imagine, he's worried because they're only three-week-old believers, and there's this massive persecution that's coming against them. And so Paul, he tries over and over and over again to go back to the city of Thessalonica to help him out. But he actually records in this letter that Satan himself was preventing him from doing so, right? 
He says, Satan hindered me from coming to you. And so what Paul does is he does the next best thing. He finds Timothy, his protege. He says, look, I want you to go to Thessalonica, and I want you to go, and I want you to establish, and I want you to encourage the believers that are there. And so he sends Timothy. Paul, he's all by himself in the city of Thessalonica. Or in, uh, uh, he's, in, he's all by himself in the city of Athens, and he's all by himself, and he just waits and he waits, and he waits. And you can just imagine, right? He's just, he's just sitting there waiting for Timothy. And all of a sudden, right, you hear this knock, and it's Timothy. Timothy's come back. And, he, and I, I don't know about you, but I kind of would think that Paul's probably like sitting there like, okay, how are they doing? What's going on? Like, please tell me that they're doing okay. And Timothy comes, and he doesn't bring bad news. He doesn't tell them, Paul, that church that you planted is gone. No, he says they're doing great. Matter of fact, they are abundant in two things. They are abundant in their faith, and they're abundant in their love. And so Paul, he's so ecstatic to hear this that you can almost imagine why he writes verse 2. Look at there with me. We give thanks to God always. You can almost hear the sigh of relief in those words, can't you, right? He, he is so excited, so relieved to hear that these believers are doing okay and that they're actually growing in their faith that he writes this verse we give thanks to God for you always. Now, when I read this, I read that the first thing that Paul is saying is, look, I've been praying for you guys. But it's not just I've been praying for you. It's I've been giving thanks to God for you. And it's not that he's saying, look, I'm thanking God that you guys are okay. No, he's saying that from the moment that I left, that I started hearing about your persecution, I've been thanking God for you. Right? Paul, Paul thanking God for them was not conditional upon the well-being of the church in Thessalonica. It's not like his prayers trans, transitioned from, I'm super anxious, super worried, oh my gosh, God, please help, to, oh, thank you, Lord. No, he's saying, the entire time that you've been going through this, I've been praising and thanking the Lord for you guys. His thanksgiving was not condition, conditional upon the well-being of the church. He's not saying, look, I'm thanking God for you now. He's saying, I've been thanking God for you the entire time. I have not stopped thanking God for you. And then I think about this, and I'm thinking, even when it was tough for Paul, he's still thanking the Lord for them. Even when it did not make sense why this is happening, he's still thanking God for them, right? And I, I got to be honest, I kind of wish... I knew how Paul did that. Because let's be honest, it's hard to have a heart of thankfulness when life is tough, isn't it? It is so much easier to thank the Lord when the fridge is full. So much easier to thank the Lord when the kids are going to sleep, when the cars turn on, when the job's paying well, right? It's so much easier to say, hey, Lord, thank you. My 401k is doing great. But when it's not... Paul's saying, I was thanking God for you the entire time. It, my thanksgiving's not conditional upon your well-being. I've been thanking the Lord for you. And then that makes me think, okay, wait a second, Paul. How is this happening? H how are you able to stay consistent the entire time with a heart of thanksgiving, right? And I wish I had like a five-step process from Paul of how to be a thankful Christian, right? I, I don't, you know? But what I see here is I see two things about the Apostle Paul. The first thing is this. Paul was a thankful man. Paul lived his life as a life of thanksgiving. Almost every single one of his letters to the New Testament churches always starts with thanksgiving. In the book of Romans, he says, First, I thank God through Christ for all of you because your faith's reported to the world. 
In the book of Corinthians, he says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace that's been given to you. To the Ephesians, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. You find this consistent theme all throughout Paul's prayers. He's constantly thanking the Lord. And so we see that Paul's a consistently thankful man. But the second thing that we see about Paul is that he says that praying with thanksgiving grants peace. Philippians chapter 4 says it like this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So that's what Paul understood, right? He, he was a very thankful man, and the reason why is he said, listen, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what's going on. And that's, that's, that's hard to do, isn't it? He says, don't worry about it. Don't put your anxiety in it, but instead, be thankful. Pray to the Lord and be thankful, and this supernatural peace that you're not going to be able to understand will protect your heart and will protect your mind. So he very well could have been anxious. He very well could have been like, oh, Lord, the church, why are you letting this happen to them? I thought you were good. He's not doing that. But he's thanking God for them. He's praying, and he's, and he's being humble, and he's thanking the Lord for them. Instead of stressing about it and being filled with anxiety and worry, he's praying. You understand that? Instead of worrying about life, he's praying about it. He's thanking God for them, right? Now, now here's the thing. Some people would then say, this is the power of positive thinking. And they think that this is some kind of like, like sales tactic for this. You think about it and, and it'll happen. Is that all this is? Is that all Christianity is, is a sales? No, absolutely not. This is a promise from God himself. You see, Paul, as any good Bible teacher, doesn't just think about this idea. Who's he get it from? He gets it from Jesus. You guys remember Matthew chapter six? What does Jesus say? Be anxious for what? Nothing. Nothing. Be anxious for nothing, thinking about yourself. What should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? And then he says this. Is life not more than food and clothing? He then says, look at the birds, right? They don't farm. They don't toil. They don't reap. They don't gather into the barns. But your Father in heaven feeds them. And then he says this. Are you not more valuable than birds? He then says this. Therefore, don't worry about your life. Seeking after these things because your father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask for it. Let me say this again. Your father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask for it. And then he says this. You, you, seek, you therefore seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So why is Paul thankful? Why is Paul thanking the Lord? Because God, or he knows that God has a plan. And not only does God have a plan, he knows that God's plan is a good plan. Right? Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? And it's because we know this truth. It's because we know that God has a plan and God's plan is good that I can take a step back, stop stressing and being anxious and worrying about the world, and I can say, Lord, thank you that you know what you're doing. Thank you that your plan is good. Right? I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage, but you do. I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids, but you do. I don't know how I'm going to be able to put gas in my tank to go to work, but Lord, you do. And I thank you for that because you know and your plan is good. So what type of conduct do Christians have? Christians pray and Christians are thankful, right? Moving forward now, we see here that he recognizes, right, that, that he's praying for them, he's thanking for them. But then also, 
I, I want to look at what his prayer is about. Look at verse 3. He says, remembering without ceasing your, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul, as he's thanking God for them, he, he mentions three things that really stuck out to him, right? That, that is when these folks put their faith in Christ, these three pieces of conduct really just blossomed in their life. The first one, he says, is a work of faith. See there, verse 3, he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. So the first thing that Paul remembers in their life is they had a working faith. In the other words, they had a faith that worked. You guys understand that? Their faith worked, right? A faith that works is a faith that produces, right? It's, it's, it's Paul saying, he, he's not saying here that he remembers that they were trying to earn their salvation or that they were trying to produce faith or they were trying to, you know, be in the good graces of God. That's not what he's saying here, right? But what he's saying is that he remembers that because they had faith, they were producing. You guys understand that? Because there was faith in their hearts, they were producing, right? This means that these people, they were doing things simply because they believed in God. That's it. They weren't doing things because they felt like out of, out of compulsion. They weren't doing things because they felt like they needed to be in God's good graces. No, they were doing things simply because they believed in the Lord, right? This isn't in my notes, but I, I want to mention it, you know. Have you guys noticed that over the past few months, we've had a variety of, uh, of coffee in the back? Thank you, Chico. <laughs> Why does he do that? He does that because he has faith in the Lord, and he wants to just bless us for that, right? And, and, and that's kind of the idea, that because we have faith in the Lord, because we believe in Jesus, that our life would, in fact, produce works. Maybe there was somebody in the church that said, you know what, I'm a Christian, and I really want to be able to bless the Lord with my life, and so because I'm a carpenter by trade, pastor, I want to build you a pulpit. And not only that, I want to make some pews for this new church. Or maybe said, Lord, I'm a Christian now, and I really want to live a holy life, and so you know what I'm going to do, God? I'm going to eradicate sin in my life. Or maybe somebody, hearing about the coming judgment and the wrath of God, said, Lord, I cannot stand with peace in my heart, going through the city, seeing all these people who are going to perish. I have to do something about it. And they go out and they evangelize. Either way, in any one of those scenarios, it was because of their faith that they produced work. The book of James speaks very straight on this. It says this, James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? He asked this question. Can, can faith save somebody who has faith, but, but they don't work, right? And then he says this, verse 15. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I got to be honest. When I read that text, I get a little nervous. I'm going to be straight honest, right? Because I read that text. That's a huge statement, isn't it? Faith without works is dead. That's, maybe not for you guys, that's terrifying for me, right? I read that, I'm like, holy smokes. Like, I want to make sure that, you know, that that's not me. But when I read about this, it's important that we understand that James isn't talking about a quantity of works, right? How many cups of coffee Chico produces, He's not talking about a, a quality of works, right? What kind of coffee Chico produces, right? But he's talking about the simple act of production. The point being is this. If you say you're a Christian and you've never gone to church, 
and you've never prayed, right? And you've never walked out your faith. You've never read the Bible. And you've never done any of those things, right? Faith without works is dead. He's saying that the absence of works means that the faith is dead. Hebrews says it like this. It says in verse 6 of chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. So let me think about it. How many of you guys ever prayed for somebody before, right? Why do you, why do you pray for somebody? Because you believe that God can actually do something, correct? How, how many of you guys ever read your Bible before, right? Because you believe that that Bible is true, no? How many, you understand what I'm saying here? So if you're saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. For those of you who have ever evangelized before and you, and you talk to someone, you say, hey, you believe in God? Yeah, I'm a Christian, right? And they're out there and they, you know what I'm saying? Faith without works is dead. Faith produces. And it's not that ta Paul's talking about that you had a works of energy or you had a works of, of you know, um, you know maybe, maybe you were trying to be better or whatever. No, no, no. Your works came from your faith. Right, so because you have faith in Christ, because you're saved, your faith produces. You understand? So second point, what type of conduct do Christians have? Christians have a faith that works. Right? So question, does your faith work? Does it work? Right? As Christians, we're not called to be stagnant people. We're not called to do nothing with our lives. We're not called to do nothing with our faith. Right? When we first believed, were we zapped to heaven? No, we weren't. We're all still here. I kind of wish we were, right? But I mean, <laughs> we're still here. But we weren't zapped to heaven because God has a plan today. God has a plan for us in the here and in the now. So therefore, as Christians, our faith in God is not, to is not designed to be a faith of consumption, but a faith of production. Right? Does that make sense? Simple enough to like tweet, I guess, you know? Right? That's the truth. Right? The idea is Christ saved me because I'm saved. Because I'm saved, I'm going to purge my life from sin. Christ saved me, and now that I'm saved, I'm going to attend church and have fellowship with other Christians, right? Christ saved me, and because I'm saved, I'm going to be giving with my finances. Christ saved me, and now I'm going to demonstrate my faith in everything that I do, right? So therefore, one of the things that should be evident in our lives is that our, our, our faith produces works, right? So that was the first thing. The second thing that Paul remembers about this church, right? Remember, they got saved, and then this is what happened after they got saved. The first one was they had a work of faith. The second one is this. They had, verse 3, a labor of love. Now, this one's like my favorite. I love this one because labor and love, you would never think. Like, I've never heard a wedding say a labor of love. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's always like love is so, like, you know, valentines and, and fluffy and fun and exciting or whatever, right? You never hear that love is laborious, right? You even maybe heard somebody say, why'd you break up with them? Well, it was laborious to love them. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, that's kind of the idea. You know what I'm saying? Like, like love requires labor. And the love word that Paul uses here is agape. It is the exact same word that Jesus says in John 3:16 when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? There's a labor, that he gave his son, right? So, so Christian love has labor. That means that we labor to love people. That means that our love is not shallow. It's not fake. It goes out of their way. It's intentional. It's I'm going to go out of my way to love this person because I know that they need it. I know that this person needs a coat. I know that this person needs to be comforted. They sit all alone by themselves in church. I'm going to go sit next to them, right? I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to do something about it, right? Now, I got, to think, I, got, I got to be honest. When I think of the term laboring to love, 
I think of my wife delivering my son. I really do. And I, and, and, I, and I know why they say I'm going into labor because, dude, that was some labor. <laughs> but, it, you know, very special memory of mine. When, uh, when, when my wife, Abby, and her sister, Megan, were both, like, very pregnant, um, Matt and Jess had said, let's get together because there's no field manual on children, right? And so we got together, and, you know, Jess had talked to the girls about what delivery is like and what to inspect and what the nurses are going to say, which was very helpful, by the way. And then Matt sat down with Zach and I, and then Matt said this. He said, I can't wait for you to go through the experience of being so utterly amazed by how much war your wife has gone through and to see her deliver your son. He says, I have never been more impressed with my wife than watching my wife go through battle and go through war to deliver my son. And, then, and it's like, I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. And then I saw it and I was like, dude, he's right. You watch your wife go through that and you're just like, holy smokes, dude. Like that was, that, I could not do that, right? Put me on a roof any single day, but delivering a child, no way, <laughs> right? I didn't plan for that to rhyme, but it did, so that's cool. <laughs> New tattoo right here, right? <laughs> So, so the idea here is that, you know, again, thinking about my wife, I'm going through this pain. I'm going through this extreme comfort. I, I am really, like, putting through all of this on. Why? Because I love you, and I love the baby that's inside of me. And I'm willing to inconvenience myself because I love, right? And so that's the exact idea of what it means of laboring to love, I'm willing to undergo an extreme amount of difficulty, an extreme amount of pain, uncomfortability. Why? Because I love you. So think about this. Think about somebody, and, and that person might be sitting here in this church. Think about somebody you don't get along with. Think about somebody that you avoid all the time, right? Laboring to love means I am willing to make myself uncomfortable, to look you in the face, and to be sacrificial and to be selfless with you, right? Because why? Because we're part of Christ's church right? Christian love labors to love one another, right? Our love as Christians is not meant to be in vain. It's not meant to be shallow, but it's meant to come from a heart of labor, right? It, it requires work to remember somebody's name, doesn't it? It requires work to remember who they are, what they asked you to pray for last week, to go out of your way, to invite them over to dinner when you want to be watching the playoffs. I get it. It takes work. Christian love works to love one another, right? So the question, what kind of love do you have as a Christian? Is your love cold? Is it selfish? Is your love contingent upon them making the first move? You ever thought about that, right? Oh, man, well, I've done my part. It's time for them to come up and talk to me now. Okay. <laughs> That's not the heart of Christ, right? Imagine if the Lord said, hey, I've done my part. You got to come to me now. It's not the heart of Christ. I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to put in genuine, intentional behavior to love that person, right? So not only did Paul remember that they had a work of faith, not only did he remember they had a labor of love, but he also remembers that they had a patience of hope. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says that they, he remembered without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, 
your election by God. So there's kind of like three pieces here. We're going to kind of divide it up to kind of get the whole idea of what's going on. But the first idea here is a patience of hope in Christ, in God's sight, knowing our election. So the first part is patience of hope. One of the things Paul remembers is that what developed in their life following their, their faith in Christ is they developed patience, right? Now, this wasn't like a generic type of patience. We're not just talking about being at Cheeto Burrito and you're just, okay, cool, I can wait. No, it's not like a generic type of patience, but they had a patience of hope in Christ, meaning that the hope that they had in the Lord produced patience. The patience was a byproduct of their hope. You guys, does that make sense? Patience came after they had placed their hope in Christ, right? And so my next question is this. What kind of hope did they have? Were they hopeful for God's millennial kingdom? Were they hopeful for the second coming? Were they hopeful for the rapture? Like, what were they hopeful in? Well, Paul actually talks about this in Romans chapter 8. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider the current sufferings of this present time not worthy of comparison to the glory to be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, imagine, like, think of a time of your life, could very well be right now, when your life was just terrible. Paul says this, I don't consider that what we're going through right now is even worth comparing the glory that'll be revealed within us, right? right? So he's saying, look, I understand it's bad, and I'm not trying to minimize it, it's bad, but... This is not even worth comparing the glory to be revealed in us, he says. Then he starts to explain this. What does this look like? In verse 19, he says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So now he's talking about mountains and trees and rivers and rocks and frogs, right? Which is kind of odd, but he has an idea. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You guys understand what he's saying here? He's saying, look, step one, what we're going through right now, it's not even worth comparing to what's going to happen. Step two, even the trees will have corruption removed from them, and they themselves will have a more glorified body. That's kind of cool, right? You guys ever been to like Yosemite or something like the Grand Canyon or something like that? It's beautiful, isn't it, right? He says that even that has a covering of corruption over it. And eventually, when the sons of God are revealed, that is, when, the, when, when we are all in Christ's kingdom and the end has come and, and the Lord rules and reigns, he says that the corruption of the earth will, will go. It will be removed, he says, right? That's great. What about me? Right? Then he says this, verse Verse, uh, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. You guys understand that? What kind of hope did the Thessalonians have? They had the hope, they had the optimistic longing that there will be a day when it's all better. Paul, speaking about the current pers persecutions and the trials that they were going through, he's saying, look, the... the the, the issues that we're going through, it's not even worth to be compared to that. But we who are saved, even we long and we groan 
for the day when all of this passes, right? Think about the loss that you've gone through. Think about the pain, right? All the circumstances, all the times where you've just had a groaning in your heart where you're like, Lord, why? He says, even us, wait for the future when all of it makes sense. And so the restoration that Christ will bring at the end of the age is far greater than any of us could ever endure here on earth. This is the same hope that the Thessalonians have. This is their hope in Christ, that one day all that we see will be gone and we will all be joined with Christ. We're, and we're reading it too, aren't we, in Revelation. We're seeing how it's coming to pass and how at the end of Revelation we notice that, you know, we will all be with the Lord and that promise of every, te every tear shall be wiped away, right? War and pestilence being gone. That's what their hope is in. Their hope is in the future, right? So the fourth point is Christians are patiently waiting for the day that Christ makes everything better. Now, the few other pieces that are attached to this kind of come in like this, right? He says they have a patience of hope, right? So they're patiently waiting for that future day, right? So they have an optimistic outlook towards the future because Christ rules and reigns. But then the question is, what about today? Right? I understand you have, a, you have a hope in the future. You're going to heaven. I get that. But what about today? He says in verse 4, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3, he says, patience in, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, in the sight of our God and Father. So Paul also remembers that they did in fact have this futuristic hope and this optimism in the Lord. But he also remembers that they weren't just thinking about the future, right? These folks weren't just thinking themselves like, oh, everything's fine because I'm going to heaven, but today they were living like a depraved wretch. Absolutely not, right? He says that they were living in the sight of our God and our Father. Now, you guys remember in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and they put some fig leaves around them to, and then they hid from God? And God said, Adam, where are you? They were hiding, remember that? Was Adam in God's sight? He wasn't, right? He had sinned, and he was hiding from the Lord. So the idea of living in the sight of God means that we don't have secret sins. It means that we don't live this double kind of life. But instead, we live out in the light, and we live right in front of God. Lord, I ain't got nothing to hide. I am, I am right here, and I am living open and honest right in front of you, right? First John says it like this. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, right? We, we say we're a Christian, but we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, right? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So they had a future hope in Christ. Yes, that's awesome. They were hoping for the Lord. They were optimistically waiting for heaven, and that's made everything, that, that, that made the difference. But that didn't excuse how they lived today. They weren't living like some kind of wicked fool, but they were living right in God's sight. I'm going to live right in front of you, right? And Paul commended them for living like this because this is, in fact, God's will for our lives. He even says here in 1 Thessalonians, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. We're not supposed to have secret sins as Christians, are we? We're not supposed to live a double life, right? Going to church, telling everybody, praise the Lord, right? And then, and then you have a girlfriend online or something, right? That's not the Lord's will for us. Open and honest, right in front of the Lord. He even says be blameless, right? That means if I was to be put on trial, 
and you were to examine every single detail of my life, you're not going to find any kind of secret sins that I have. Why? Because I'm living right in front of God. Lord, I don't have anything to hide, right? And then he says this. This is the third piece to this kind of, you know, um, like Lego piece, I guess, right? First, second, now this is the third. He says, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So Paul says to them that all of these things, your hope, your patience, the fact that you're living right openly in front of God with no secret sins, that is all due to the sole fact that they knew their election by God. What does that mean? They knew they were saved. They knew that they were Christians. They knew that if they were to die right here and right now, they would be in the presence of the Lord. They knew that. They were confident with that. They did not wrestle with whether or not they were saved, but they were confident that they were, right? This is, this is one of the things that I have um, constantly seen as a reoccurring issue in the youth group, right? And I don't think it's because of any other fact than the fact that these kids are new believers. And that's something that we all wrestled with, wasn't it? Or isn't it, right? Of, Lord, am I saved? Lord, am I really going to heaven, right? And this is kind of what I tell the youth group kids. I say, I'm not looking for you, right? So the Bible refers to us almost like as if we're, we are like branches and trees and so on and so forth, right? That we would produce good fruit, right? What I tell the youth group kids is, I'm not really looking for you to be like this massive apple tree that's producing all kinds of fruit right when you get saved. But if I was to look at you and I was to see a little branch with a little leaf, and that tells me that you're alive in the Lord, praise the Lord on that, right? And I think this is something that we grow in, right? Because I understand that this is, this is a very tough truth to handle. But these folks, they were confident in their salvation. They were confident in the fact that they were going to heaven. And I got to be honest, this is something that we can also be confident in. Because I can tell you, the Lord doesn't want you to think, oh, I'm, I'm not saved anymore because I messed up. That's, that's not the heart of God. But the heart of God is that he wants you to be confident in him. Because think about it. Salvation, right, the Bible says that we were saved by grace through faith, not of works, the Bible says in Ephesians, right? So the Lord does not want you to doubt that he saved you. You understand? Because when we doubt our salvation, we are essentially saying that God was ineffective to save us, right? That, that, that Jesus says, I have purchased you by my own blood, you are mine. And then we say, are you sure about that, God? He wants us to be confident in him. And these folks, they were confident. They knew that they were saved, right? And it's not because I know that I'm saved because I do all these things. It's not because I know that I'm saved because I go to church and this and this and this and that, right? The Bible even says our works to the Lord are like dirty rags, right? So it's not that we trust in our works so that we would know our salvation, but it's because when we read the gospel, we understand that it says any who believe in him shall have eternal life. It kind of reminds me of like a trust fall, right? Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Okay, Lord, I'm trusting in you. You're telling me that you're going to catch me? All right, I'm putting my faith in you. And because of that, that's where our confidence comes from. The gospel says that if I believe in Christ, then I am saved. Well, then, okay, Lord, I believe in you, and I'm trusting, I'm trusting in you. I'm confident in that, right? So this church, they had a confidence in Christ. They had a confidence in Christ when they received the gospel and they believed in it and they placed all of their confidence in Christ's ability to save, right? They were able to live their life with no secrets, 
but out in the open. Why? Because they were confident they were saved. They were confident that the Lord's work in, in, our, in, in their life was effective and it was true. They knew that. I am saved and I believe in it, and so I'm going to live my life for him right in front of his sight. And because of that, that produced hope, and that produced patience. And it all stemmed from that one fact. I'm confident that the Lord had saved me, right? Now, all of these things, prayer, faith, labor of love, patience of hope, they were abundantly present in this church. Abundant. My question is why? What was the deal? What was so significant about these people that they had such a radical change? They placed their faith in Christ, and they had a massive change in their life. Why? What happened? What was special about them? Let's look at verse 5. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you, for your sake. So why was there such a tremendous change in the lives of these people? Why did they live so differently? Like, like, that, uh, like that song, I once was blind, but now I see. Why? What happened? Because this last time I checked, a blind person can't just hope that they can see, and then all of a sudden they see. What happened? What kind of change happened in their life? The fifth point for us today, folks, is that Christians have a good conduct because the gospel is real. Paul wasn't there doing some kind of circus act. He wasn't there, you know, flailing his arms, screaming from the rooftops just to kind of entertain them. But he told them that the gospel came in power, it came in the spirit, and it came with assurance. So power, what does that mean? These people had real chains. Do me a favor. Let's look down to verse 9. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. What does it say? He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you in how you turned to God from idols. The only way that that's possible is if there's power. I mean, folks, in our church alone, we have people who've recovered from drug addiction. We have people who have had failed marriages that the Lord has restored. We have people who've recovered from gambling problems. Folks, in our church alone, we've seen this massive power, a power that is only evident by the hand and by the gospel of God. There is no other power that's able to do that. Well, you think, you think money can do that? <laughs> There's nothing that has that kind of power. So he says that the gospel, it came with power. Why did this happen? Because the gospel came with power. The second thing, it came with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you something. Well, actually, uh, not, not a question, more of a story. One time I was teaching the youth group, and I had this kid come up to me, tap me on the shoulder. He said, did my mom talk to you? <laughs> he, says, he says, my mom talked to you, didn't she? Because you said everything that my mom was telling me about yesterday, about all my problems. What did she say? What did my mom tell you, you know? I was like, listen, dude, I'm just reading the Bible, man. I'm just, listen, I'm just reading the Bible and I'm teaching it. How many of you guys ever had an experience like that, right? Where, where it just comes from the pulpit, right? And it just seems like, man, that's for me, man. The Lord's speaking to me, right? That's what the gospel does. It comes in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the third person of God, meaning that God himself is speaking to you, right? These people were worshiping, you know, the idols of Zeus, Hermes, Aphrodite, and so on and so forth. These statues they'd never talked before, but then they heard the word of God, and all of a sudden, God Almighty spoke to them, beckoning them to repent and to believe. And the last thing, it came with assurance. You see, Paul and his crew of guys, they lived like they believed what they were teaching. They weren't fake. 
right? They didn't have some kind of secret life like we were talking about. They were, they were genuine. So he's preaching the gospel, and he's saying, look at my guys. And, you know, this guy over here, he, he, he used to be in prostitution, and now the Lord saved him from that. This guy over here, he used to be a drug addict. The Lord saved him from that. This guy over here, right, there's power in this gospel. And the Holy Spirit from God, there's nothing else that can preach a word like this. Why? Because it comes from the mouth of God. And it came with assurance, right? They're living like it. So the, 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 the point being is this. These folks, they heard the message. They saw the power. They heard it from God. They saw that it changed every single one of these guys' lives. And they said, I would be a fool to not believe in this. I would be a fool to not place my full faith and trust in the Lord, right? So maybe we're here today. And maybe we are Christians. Maybe we've, we've placed our faith in Christ and our love has gone cold. Maybe we've, maybe we've gotten a little bit like, let's say, bored with God. Maybe we haven't read the word anymore. We just kind of show up to, to church and maybe we fall asleep, right? I'd like to remind you of how Jesus says, and you'll remember this from when Tony taught this you know, a few, few, uh, few weeks ago when he was teaching in Revelation to the church of Ephesus, the church that had left their first love. He says this, remember from where you have fallen and repent and then turn, right? So if you're here today and you're like, man, I used to be on fire for the Lord and I'm cold. I'm cold and I'm bitter and I'm mean and my friends are dropping like flies. Remember from where you were, repent, turn to the Lord. And if you're here today and maybe this is, you know, one of the many times, or maybe it's the first time that you've heard this. You see the power. You see the change. You know that the Lord is speaking to you. The Bible says, do not harden your heart to the message that the Lord is speaking to you. If you're here and you're hearing these words, let me tell you, the gospel's real. God is real. Christ is real. It's, a, it's powerful enough to make a monumentous change, to take people who were worshiping idols, statues, and to completely change them for the Lord. Why would you harden your heart? Let me tell you something. Do not harden your heart. The Lord is speaking to you. The Lord wants you to place faith in him, and the Lord wants to change you. Let's all stand and let's pray.